This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Hello and welcome to the Stillness Everyday Podcast. My name is Herodotos and this podcast exists to help you find stillness in all aspects of your life, in finance, in health, in mindset and in your relationships. I created this business because I believe that if you can develop the ability to find stillness in your mind, you will learn to create harmony in all aspects of your life. Find us at Stillness Every Day on social media or stillnesseveryday.com. A lot of people ask me how they can get started with meditating. Now, my first experience with meditation was at a Vipassana retreat, which is 10 days in silence. But I understand this isn't practical for most people. That's why we created the Stillness Everyday Journal. This journal has a range of prompts, which allow you to not only create your day, but reflect on your day at the end of it. The journal also has a range of audible meditations, which are perfect for beginners. Check out stillnesseveryday.com. Welcome back to the Stillness Everyday podcast. Today, I've got Jared from Next Developments uh, down in Launceston, Tasmania. Uh, we've been following each other for quite a while. Not sure how we met. I actually think one of um, my cousins in Deloraine forwarded one of your stories over to me, and mm. then I just clicked follow because I actually thought you were there's a ho- there's a development company in Hobart or they're architects and they have a similar name to you. So I thought I was following them. Anyway, <laughs> and um, then this random content <laughs> ended up on your feed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, the the podcast is going to be about property, property development, a bit about investing, how Jared um, got started, and what he's now doing. He has a number of properties around um, Australia, and the, where I think it's important for our listeners because it's a bit different to what I normally discuss is I think you know property developers are always looked at as these big guys who kind of destroy the place or make all this profit and, you know, take advantage of people. But I think that there is a good market for people to enter into this. And I think it's important that we have small scale property developers um, because they, you know, they help change the fabric of, you know, a town or a region um, for the better. Because generally if they're smaller, you know, like us, you're, you're developing into your town, you want to see, the people improve their lives rather than, uh, you know, Stockland Board of CEOs sitting in Sydney. They don't really care about South Sunshine Coast when they plonk a bigger state in. So they don't, don't care what they're putting on the ground, don't care what it's like, don't care what the community they create or don't create is. Exactly. So um, Jared's going to tell us a bit about how he got started. Um, he wasn't in the industry in trade or anything when he got going, which I also want to touch on because I think it's important that you know, we know we can just go after what we want, what we, you know, if we are interested in something, you don't need to be a carpenter to start building houses. You just, you know, get going and you learn along the way. Mm. So welcome to the Stillness Everyday podcast. Let's get started. Thanks for having me. I've listened to all these podcasts and it's kind of trippy being on it myself. <laughs> yeah. So like I come from a background of property investors. My, my, my dad's always been an investor. He's always been a salaried employee, um, quite a successful town planner, actually. He was one of the first generation of town planners when that pr- career and that profession became became a thing. He took town planning quite seriously. He thought about how a community is created, and we often analysed the suburbs and the buildings and the developments around us. So it was a discussion that was going on in our, in our house, in our family. And then he was investing in property, um, just kind of a natural fit for him. Not a very not an active investor at all. Everything was just long term buy and hold, 
sell some things sometimes, buy other things. But buying a property was never really mystical. The idea of renting wasn't particularly high on my – I have rented at times, but it wasn't high on my sort of normality list. So when I was uh, – I would have been 19 or 20, I uh, bought my first townhouse. It was a three-bedroom townhouse in uh, a little development in Canberra. When I bought it, it was about – it was a bit, would have been about six or eight years old. So it wasn't a very old building. It was in a, one of the newer suburbs of Canberra. And, I, you know, I was a young guy. Had a, I had a full-time job. And I, I never really – I never went to uni, interestingly enough. I kind of got distracted. I bought this property and I took a full-time job and worked a few places and ended up in amongst the public service. And I kind of – that was my life for sort of oh, six or eight years. And – wasn't particularly fulfilling. I went into the public service because um, money was good and it was a good way to meet expectations of my family. Honestly, I would think I was just doing what other people thought I should do. You're in Canberra, weren't you? So yeah. that's the capital of public service. Yeah, yeah, and good pay, good people to work with, great work-life balance. And I, I slipped, I don't know why, but I ended up in amongst IT and I ended up becoming a, a programmer and a, I ended up in data. I'm a natural problem solver. That's what I've always enjoyed. So it fitted that problem solving element. Now, that life led me to a good income that got me into property at the beginning. Uh, I met my wife in Canberra and I did a lot of travel out of Canberra. So like I spent a lot of time traveling around the world and taking big chunks of time off from my public service job. But um, I got to about 29. We were married. We're trying to have have kids and... It just wasn't working. My wife wasn't falling pregnant. Canberra life wasn't really suiting us. And so it was a 50-50 decision between leaving Canberra and leaving Canberra and going to Launceston or Newcastle. We chose Newcastle, interestingly enough. So we moved to Newcastle. I, I started my own business. It was great timing because it was rolling right into the GFC. Uh, and my business was um, a media, like a abrasive blasting business. And all the companies who you would work for all chose to wind back their maintenance schedules. All the cars you would have worked on with that kind of blasting, everyone just put them in the garage and didn't do anything because everyone was scared of their super funds and they're losing their jobs and everything. And the business went broke within about six or nine months. I had to sell the house I owned at that point, which was my first house, to pay out the debts of the business. And I had to you know, swallow my pride, go back to work and go back to an IT job. And I was on about half the money I used to be on but that middle chunk there for about a year where I I did whatever I had to do to kind of make money to pay to keep try and keep the business going, that was where I realized that I we were broke. We were living in this rundown house in Newcastle because we just we kept all our investments, so we didn't cash anything in. We just basically cash flowed into a tiny little house in um, Newcastle. And we were broke, so we needed a new kitchen. So I just went and started working for a joiner. I had heaps of time. My business was quiet. So I started work laboring for a joiner and then he helped me build my kitchen. So I did my kit, this high-end kitchen, really nice kitchen, probably the best one in the suburb. And that was the first bit of renos I ever did. And then I had a mate who was a builder. So he helped me do the bathroom and we did the bathroom and we ended up with this nice new bathroom, nice new kitchen. I polished the floors in the house and we painted everything. And I kind of went, I really enjoy this. I like I like building stuff. I like making something and getting something out of the out of what's going on. And I through all my laboring and doing whatever I could to kind of keep myself going in that that business period, 
I met a lot of people who were builders and tradesmen and I start, I made the working for that joiner. I learned a lot and I kind of went, no, no, I want to do property stuff and I want to do something active. Yeah. It was an interesting period. Uh, but I had to take a full-time job back in IT because I had a little, I had a daughter by then. And then soon I had a son after that and you know, the only income supporting the family. So I was in IT for probably another year or two and I just, we were so over Newcastle. I, no, but nothing bad to say about the city, but it's a very closed society there. And um, we found, we kept meeting people and they go, oh, really great to meet you. We'd love to have you over for dinner. And you go, yeah, that'd be great. And then there'd be no invite. You'd meet them again and they go, oh, we should have you over for dinner. It'd be really great. <laughs> After this kept happening over and over, we realised that everyone in Newcastle, all our friends ended up being expats from other places. All the locals grew up there, had friends there, had family there, and didn't really need anyone else in their social circle. And I, um, our, we had an investment in Launceston, and um, it was sitting empty. It was a really rough period in Launceston where the market was flat, no one was moving here, rentals were sitting vacant if, if they weren't really top-notch. And so we just on a whim within sort of six to eight weeks, we moved to Launceston. I got an IT job down here. I managed to up my salary a bit. We ended up in Launceston and that was kind of the beginning of me going, getting way more active in investment. So we bought property, we renoed stuff, we started running projects and I started, I bought my first subdivision in a little town called Perth, not Perth WA. Mm. For those who don't know Tassie, just out of Launceston, there is a town called Perth. We just call it Little Perth. And I bought a subdivision and it was half done and the woman's husband had died. He was the one running the subdivision and he died. So she just sold it half done and approved. And so I finished this subdivision and learnt the process, met a surveyor who I'm still really good friends with to this day. We do projects together. And I kind of went, oh, this is really good. You do a bunch of paperwork and you turn a block of land into two blocks of land or three or whatever you do. And it's, it's really fun. It's like problem solving, but not at a desk, man. So that just that was kind of the start of that process, and that was what that was the the period where I kind of flicked into. No, I'm going to be an active property investor. I'm going to work out how to get this developer, mm. the right term, and work out how to get this to work and transition out of IT. And it's been kind of the job of the last eight or ten years doing that. And um, I'm kind of getting towards the end of that changeover at the moment, and got projects going. I got more projects outside of my day-to-day work than I can keep on top of. And when your job's getting in the way, you've got to get rid of it. That's right. You bought your first property in Canberra and then yep. you said something about we kept our properties. Did you own more properties um, in Canberra? Or? No. Um, when my wife and I got married, we had two properties between us. We kept mine, moved into that and sold hers. And we used the cash from that to buy a couple of properties in, um, a couple of properties in Orange. Uh, they were or at the time, the government, the public housing was selling off all their stock, which is, mm. you know, I want to talk about housing affordability. You can talk about, like, they sold all their stock, never replaced it with anything, handed it to property investors, and then, you know, whinge about the property investors. Mm. So we bought two of the ex-public housing houses out there, and we bought one here in Launceston, which wasn't Department of Housing. It was a massive old Californian bungalow thing on the side of the hill, right in the city. And we had this group of investments that we kept. And when we moved to Newcastle, we didn't sell any of that. And then my first my first proper money-making investment where I actively got involved was actually in Kempsey. We bought a house in Kempsey, which had a flat downstairs and a house upstairs. And I managed a whole reno through the house, up the rental income. I think we spent 30 or 40 grand on the reno. 
we managed to up our rental income by about 100, 150 a week across the property. And that property in Kempsey kept us financially afloat through some of the roughest years. Like when kids are young and you're one salary and you're doing a lot of stuff, you know, that's a financially pretty tight period of life for a lot of people. Mm. And that Kempsey property was cash flowing us like it was it was putting two thousand bucks of cash in our bank account every every month. And the mortgage payment back then was like four or five hundred bucks. I know all these places, but I don't actually know how far they are between but to me orange is quite far from canberra how how far are all these places and why did you choose to invest in all these different suburbs because i suppose most people you know are scared to invest outside of their own region orange is a weird one i've got my my grandfather my grandfather was a businessman and lived in orange my dad grew up in orange so i've always been in and out of orange a little bit and so i felt okay there and it's about two hours from canberra roughly so it wasn't too far that, like, you could go and check on the houses. You could go and talk to the agent. When we had changeovers, we'd go out there and we'd do a bit of maintenance, a bit of painting. So that was easy when we lived in Canberra. Orange was really affordable. My family's from, I'm, I grew up in Bellingen, mid-north coast, New South Wales. So that east coast of New South Wales is, I feel completely at home. I know every town I've been, I've spent time right up and down that coast. Mm. So Kempsey was a town I'd been in and out of all my life. So we lived in Newcastle when we bought that, and it was just a case of where can I afford to buy a house that will make cap money, and can I get to it? So it was like I think from Newcastle, it's about it was about a three three hour drive, maybe a four hour drive, and so I'd just pack up my Forester station wagon with all my tools, and I'd drive there, and I'd work hard for a week, and I'd drive home, and I'd spend the weekend with the family, and then turn around and drive back. It was um, a little bit of a slog, but. It did the job, and it was it was a, a lot about figures. Um, Canberra was never a real good place to invest, in my opinion. For you'd make money on houses, but you'd have to be tipping money. Like Canberra is a negative gearing city, yeah. Right. So there there is definitely you can do active strategies there, but you need like a million dollars to buy a project. I actually have a mate who does do projects in Canberra, so he'll buy a house, he'll strata title the block or subdivide the block, depending which one it is. And he'll build a big house at the back, but his his entry cost is like eight hundred to a million, mm. and then he's got his construction cost on top. It's pretty big, big figures for to mm. do it, and you got to be there, and you got to know everyone. So yeah, it just didn't. I never quite got into Canberra, and we sold the house in Canberra when we when the business went broke. So I've just never quite got back there. I remember the um, I remember looking at the storage the rate per square metre for self-storage in Canberra versus the rest of Australia, and it was exorbitant. It was like mm-hmm. twice or three times the price of the sunny coast. Um, yeah. It's expensive Canberra's there. Cool but everyone that kind of commercial stuff. Everyone earns a lot of money there too, though. Well, yeah, there's a lot it's of... Not, the, a lot of people... It's a different... It's a weird thing because there's not a lot of people earning millions, but there's a hell of a lot of people who are on 100 to 250. Hmm. At ch- most people... Are, are easy over 100 grand. So your average income is really high, but you don't have a lot of people who are making massive there's, money. There's a lot of um, dinks there, isn't there? Double income, yeah. no kids. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot of that. But then the ones who... And the, the, reason, the main reason we left Canberra, all our friends who had kids would take six months off work, have this baby for six to 12 months, and then they go back to work. And they go back part-time, and then they go back full-time. And by the time that kid was two or three... They were being every day, full-time, cared for by strangers. Mm. And we just like, for us, it was like, well, why would you have kids and pay someone else to raise them? Like, they don't have our moral values. They don't have our, I mean, being a parent is bloody hard. And outsourcing it to someone else, I can understand the temptation, but I just, 
it wasn't us. We wanted to raise our own kids. And that was that was actually the main reason for leaving Canberra. It was like break the tie with our public service full-time jobs yeah. and make a real change. And it, and it did that. It was really hard, but it, it did the job. Is that why you follow me? Because I talk a lot about, you know, I think, I mean, my, my father's partner's in childcare. And um, mm. I think people start as young as six weeks, which is yeah. wild because like... I have a good friend who um, works in, worked in childcare till she um, till she had her own kids, and I used to talk to her about that stuff. And she there would there were mums who would stop their work day, come down, breastfeed their baby, go back and go back to work, and then come back for the breastfeeds. Why? And I'm just I just like <laughs> it's yeah um, I, I no, look without the government subsidy, no one would do it. That's the end of it because, like, what is it, a hundred and something a day, and then you get subsidised down to sixty. It's even borderline not worth it if you factor in, you know, you travel in the morning, the time, the cost to actually put the child in. Yeah. The mum's probably on a low income sort of job anyway, just helping out. So, I remember my I had a, I had a manager who, were, who I worked for in Newcastle because I worked for the university in Newcastle for a while. And I remember talking to him when his wife went back to work, and she stayed home for sort of two or three years with their kids, and she went back to work and she worked at the hospital, and you could tell life was getting to them, like both people working, managing kids in and out of daycare. And I had a I, he was a he was a good guy. I had a really frank chat with him one day, and he's like, "My wife is going back to work full time." so that she can get her career back on track and they are $100 a week better off for her full time out of the house. Yeah, it makes no sense. And then if you start to consider, um, we're going off topic, but we may as well touch on it. The <laughs> if, if the wife's at home, you know, you're cooking, you're saving more money on eating out or you're, you know, you've got a garden like, or you're the homemaker things, things that you can not buy, you're then going to save the $100 anyway. So you're oh, going to make 100%. the family, you know, But also, more how much better, better is her life? How much better is the kid's life and her life when there isn't all that pressure and stress around work? Mm. But, I mean, bringing it back to my life, my wife struggled being a mum because she has grown up in an era where being a mum is not valued and that's in her head. Mm. No matter how, you, how much you say that is the most important job, the value isn't there. It's just not wired into her. And she's a brilliant mother, like raised really great kids and did stay home and raise them herself until they were basically in school. My son was my son was in kindy and she, that, well, yeah, when he got through kindy, he got into prep, which is full time. That was the time when she decided to go back to work. And she's worked sort of 10, 15, 20 hours a week since then. Yeah, I think we have a culture and a society which doesn't say this is okay and doesn't value it and says that if you're not working, you're not you're not valued. Mm. I think that's a sad thing. What do you think changed it and created that culture? Because your mum would have raised you that way, right? My mum didn't work at all. Oh, a couple of little part-time jobs here and there, but basically during my childhood she didn't. And her mum never held, had a job at all. Oh, maybe at a cake shop before she got married, like, that kind of era. Mm. But it's, I'd have to say from my perspective, it's feminism. Mm. It's the, you can be like a man. And unless you are like choosing like a man, I find it really interesting. Feminism says you can do whatever you like. And then the women who I've got friends who are women who choose to be mums and they're like, yeah, but I get judged for it. And you're like, but you should be able to choose whatever you like. I think the other thing is the economic drivers. I mean, we've, We've financialized housing 
to the point where, and and all of our lives, but mostly our house, housing and then financialising cars and then financialising short-term finance to the point where you need two incomes to run a family. Like that's that's the thing in Canberra. Everyone needs two incomes to drive the BMWs and the Volkswagens and the yeah. and their Volvos and to have a nice house with a nice extension and a new kitchen. But that's minimum standard in Canberra. Mm. And you need $200,000 plus salaries to just make, it en- make ends meet. And I think the more the people around you are doing it, the less you start to question not doing it. And then, yeah, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my wife said to me, if we stay in Canberra and I raise our kids, who am I going to hang out with? Who am I going to talk to? Yeah. Because everyone's at work. I think the Sunshine Coast, apparently, I heard this morning the Sunshine Coast has the largest homeschooling community in Australia and people moving here for that. Mm. And I think we obviously get pulled whether it's, um, you know, consciously or unconsciously to where we our beliefs match, you know. So obviously you left Canberra yeah. and Launceston's probably more suited for you. I mean, Launceston yeah. is, is slower and there's probably more, oh. there's more mums there. But it is, I actually, my, you know, I swear everyone I know in Tasmania, it is the same problem. Like women are just, you know, they don't want to be mums. Yeah, and I think that's that's a society that's everywhere. So we came down here and my wife hooked into a Steiner playgroup. The Steiner playgroup had a lot of ties into the homeschooling network. There's this whole homeschooling network of people who homeschool apart and come together to share events and to share resources, which is really awesome. And then um, the Steiner playgroup, there wasn't a Steiner school, it was just a playgroup. So my, part of my background is I'm educated in Steiner schools. Until I was in year seven, I did year seven in a Steiner school and then I went to state schools after that. Mm. And um, so my parents started the first Steiner school I went to, which is in Coffs Harbour, it's still there, called Casuarina. Yeah, right. And so my wife and I went, right, let's start a Steiner school. So my wife and a couple other parents, because they weren't working, They had time, and my wife's an ex-public servant. She knows how to manage paperwork and bureaucracy. Mm. They started the Steiner School. so um, I've heard good things about them. Yeah, well, my daughter was the first kid enrolled in the Steiner School here in in Launceston, and I think it's got about 100 kids in it now. Mm. And I was part of the board when we bought the site that it's on now and started the first development projects and put in all the big car parks because you'll be compliant as heck. Mm. And so it was, yeah, it was an interesting process. And I, I think you're right. I think we naturally, I think if you're open to it and you're not just, you're not just going along with that, with your, with your eyes closed, mm. you naturally find your way into a place where you fit. Yeah. And I definitely, I, I'm, I can't see myself ever leaving Launceston. Like the people are good. The climate is good. The city is good. The climate's good. I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's um. So I got because I spent a lot of times living in Canberra. I'm used to seasons. Yeah. I like like I'm used to. There's a summer, an autumn, a spring, and a winter. Like that. Those yeah. things all. I like the flow. Like it is. It, this morning, I got a building site right next to me today for my neighbours doing an extension, and I was looking out the window. It's pitch dark. Seven a.m. Daughter seven. The excavator started up next door, and he's got spotlights to work with. Yeah. I'm like. Yeah, it is pretty dark still, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's like four thirty here. Yeah. Whereas, and then at night, like we're on the roof, put screwing down roof, a roof sheet on a, one of my properties. I was helping the builder work on it yesterday, and we're screwing the roof sheet down at like I don't know five o'clock, and it's dark as we're screwing it off. Like the the lights going out, and he's like, "Right, this is getting a bit hard to do." <laughs> But in summer, we have these gorgeous days where the sun's setting at like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. Mm. 
We never get it that late here. We kind of, I feel like ours changes an hour in the Sunshine Coast. Like yep. It's either sets at 5.30 or 6.30. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so how do you, I'm, I'm interested to hear about how your father saw like a town plan from, you know, um, how I see it as having studied architecture um, and whether you have similar kind of beliefs on how a city should run and then whether that reflects into the designs that you're, you're doing. Like are you consciously trying to, you know, make something different to the spec home that you're developing? Yeah. So we, my dad didn't really talk about his views a lot, but he talked about a lot of the theory. So there are suburbs in Canberra where if you drive down the street, it's main roads with cul-de-sacs and garages on the cul-de-sacs and that's it. Mm. All the houses face the other direction into green communal green space with these beautiful paths and low fences or no fences onto public space with its all pedestrian access. Right. And they were public housing suburbs. Like the government was building with these modern planning ideas where we build community, people face each other, we share space. Right. And 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 we used to talk about the theory behind that stuff. And so my So you're saying, sorry, the street from the street where you drive in, there's yep. no connection there, but the connection's on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Right, okay. So living living spaces all face the other way, gardens face the other way into these communal um, so there, there's these natural sort of um, areas of footpath and greenery going in between all the cul-de-sac houses right. so that so that the communal space is away from the road because there was this whole, like planning, town, towns changed a lot when motor vehicles came in because yeah. they move at a different speed. They don't interact with pedestrians well. And Canberra is a really interesting suburb because you have these gradiated roads where the whole city is linked by these big roads then you have these smaller roads that go in and out of the suburbs and transect the whole, whole suburb. And then you have these smaller, really small roads, which are the ones that the houses are on. When you're interacting with traffic in Canberra, you're, you're, always de- you're usually dealing on a local level at a local speed with people you know. It's an interesting city to, grow, to spend a lot of time in. But, I mean, I did a subdivision here in Launceston where I bought a piece of – it was a, the council had developed all housing lots along the main road and left these gaps – and it had been just kept as a fattening property for a local butcher. And then when the butchers retired, they gave it to their kids. And their kids, he just he just kept he just kept it as a paddock and done nothing with it. And I bought it for nothing. Like I think we paid a quarter of a million dollars for it, like two hundred fifty grand for this massive block of land. But it was zoned low density res, so we couldn't cut it up too much. And we had these three access points. So I designed this this subdivision where we had. Our smallest block was two and a half, two and a half thousand square meters, and our biggest one was ten thousand square meters. And we only did seven lots on this big piece of land. And I did these shared driveways, and I had to negotiate the heck out of it with the council. So I did these shared driveways where it's a deco granite driveway, uh, Corten steel edging, and then native plants all around it. So lots of power grass, like a Tassie natives. Mm. And I had a um, an architecture professor here. His wife designed the layout for the plants and the garden beds for me because she knew all the Tassie natives and stuff and does that sort of design. And we've got big rocks from around the site and we placed them in the landscaping. And it's this idea that people will come and go, three or four houses at a time, will come and go through this shared space and the blocks are big. You can have chickens, fruit trees, all the other stuff. And I wanted to build something like that. And the council came back to me when I put in this plan and they're like, you're doing seven lots, but you can fit 20. Yeah, but if I fit 20, one, I have to put in a lot more services and that'll cost a lot of money and it's all rock up there. So I'd have been blasting. And I said, and the other thing is, I don't want to put a cul-de-sac in. I don't want to create traffic. I don't want to do this. I wanted, 
I wanted to build something I'd be proud of. Mm. And the other thing is I wanted to keep one of the lots and live up there at some point, which I, I did keep one of the lots. And it's probably slowed me down a lot in my sort of financial journey, but also my development journey is I'm not willing to just build cheap crap. I'm kind of, I'm more interested in building something I'm proud of. So what was, did you run the numbers on the 20 lots versus seven? And was there much difference? Possibly could have made a little bit more, but the thing that the council don't care about when they push for density is the services. And like I said, the rock, we ended up blasting for this, for a part of the stormwater. We, we had a, a, an excavator with a big diamond drill putting in charges and blasting the rock and we cut this massive canyon. Mm. And I would have lost money potentially. Um, had it not been for the rock, I probably would have made a bit more money. But the goal, I'd, I'd done my FISO on seven lots. I'd made my plans on seven lots and my joint venture partners who funded it all. So the way I do a lot of my projects is I find the deal, I do all the planning, I do all the work, mm. and I have partners who fund it. And then we share the profits. Usually, I, I I always do a split where they're making more money than me. That's just I have this philosophical idea that even if it's fifty one forty nine, the person who's re- willing to put their money on the line with me and show that kind of trust, I'd rather make a little bit less money and show them they're the value. Well, the the biggest I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think it's the biggest developer in China mm. or Hong Kong said that he said every deal he ever does he he gives the the more profit away because it's because yeah. he's actually getting their investment in or he was that's how he grew well, to be the biggest but it makes well, sense it's like you give away more and then they're going to be willing to trust you more well the guys who did that subdivision with me it was the first one they did uh it took us a long time because we had a lot of issues uh with our stormwater council <laughs> is a funny thing i bought this block of land and I went to council. I went, now all the neighbours are dumping their stormwater on the ground on my block and I don't want that. And they're like, yeah, no worries, sort that out. I'm like, no, no, stormwater's your problem. Yeah, but it's your block of land. I'm like, well, how about I build the stormwater and I bill you for it? They went, yeah, okay, that sounds like a plan. So then I ended up having to be re- a registered supplier of infrastructure for the council. I had to get the insurances that went with that. And then I ended up, I wrote, I wrote my first invoice for six figures. I'm like, I'm literally billing the council for, it was stage payments. So it was actually about a quarter of a million dollars worth of work that we did for them. But one of my invoices was for like 105 grand. And I'm just like, I'm like, how did I end up here <laughs> building stormwater infrastructure? And all that blasting that I mentioned, that was part of that project. So that all just got billed to them. And like everyone who was passing me bills was putting markups on it. I'm like, ah, screw this. I'm going to put markups on it too. Like I'm managing the bills, I'm managing the process, I'm taking a bunch of the risk. Yeah. So I started marking everything up by kind of 10%. That's what everyone was doing. And I ended up making more money for the project by providing this stormwater infrastructure. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but it was a bit delayed. The guys who um, invested, uh, it was meant to take about 18 months. It took about probably two and a half years in the end. Yeah. But they paid off their mortgage on their house with the profit they made from that. That's good. And then they basically handed me the money back twofold. They handed me the investment back and the profit back, and we bought two more projects, which we're slowly working our way through now. Yeah, cool. I might. Do you have any photos of it? I might chuck it up on the. Yeah, yeah. happy to happy to share some photos. There's um, there used to be a website. I don't know if the website still exists, but one of the the JV partner, um, one of them is a graphic designer and does mm. web design stuff. So he built a website for it. Yeah, right. registered the domain name, chucked up all the aerial photos and things. Yeah, I want to go back to what you said about Canberra, where you said the um, 
the connection was in the backyards where they all kind of met. I've never thought of, I mean, I suppose I have because in uni I had to do a design where we had a bunch of townhouses and then they they looked into a you know community space like you're talking about, a green space where they had barbecue mm. areas and like semi-private and then public areas where they could um, integrate. Um, but on the street, because our, obviously our biggest problem, which you know is the double lock-up garage that then either usually has a 2100, 2100 high block fence at the front. So no one interacts with the street at the front. But mm. we, you know, when we learned at um, uni, it was to design an interactive front of the building where you could interact with the street. But I actually quite like the idea of, obviously because cars are impossible to design around, to put it on the back because you see a lot in Hobart and I don't know if you're in Launceston because I haven't spent heaps of time in Launceston but the townhouses that had no garages mm. and how much more you interact with um, the building because you've got a really small fence, a small garden, then like a little veranda and then the door. So, yeah. you, you know, you, you're out there having a cup of, cup of tea and you can see the mailman as he drop, drops yeah. off the letter. It's one of the things that Canberra also had was this policy about no front fences in the in the in the house suburbs. So that suburb was laid out like that, that one I was mentioning. They deliberately planned the suburbs. So... It's not like the houses were facing insular. They had all these communal spaces. But what you're talking about with architecture, you can't control the layout of a suburb. Mm. So you've naturally, most of, your, most of your interaction with anything outside of the house is the front of the frontage. Because otherwise and Canberra it's three for fences. those suburbs had a rule about no fences at the front. You no. couldn't have a fence. So people had hedges and other things. And then there was this era in the 90s where a whole lot of people started, you remember those brush fences? They're like made of bunches of sticks all wired together. No, I never saw them. Ah, well, they were big in Canberra because it wasn't a fence because it was sticks. Right. It wasn't timber. It wasn't fabricated. So people started putting up brush fences so that they had privacy. What do you think this idea of the fence is? Like why why do Australians love fences? Uh, We have a real obsession about what is mine is mine and what is yours is yours. We don't have a community. I think we've we've got a lacking community um, focus I did my permaculture design course um, maybe two years ago and it was really cool to get in amongst that community because they've got a really different mindset. Permaculture naturally brings that, which is around sharing resources, sharing produce, sharing ideas, sharing labour. I think that's really lovely. And Launceston has a whole series of community gardens through it. They're in schools, they're in public spaces and the council support them, which I, I really like. But I think... We, we like to be behind a fence. Like one of, my, one of the houses in my street, and it's owned by a real estate agent. If you walk past that house 90 time, 99 times out of 100, all it has is two garage roller doors facing the street and a white-rendered 2.8 high wall. Mm. That's it. But the one, to- one time a week, on Saturday morning at the right time, you'll catch him out the front washing his cars on the street. <laughs> the rest of the time, you don't even you can't even tell if they're home or not. Yeah, I just think that's a really sad way to interact with the world. I, mm. I'd love to see. I think, I think potentially where the world will go, we'll end up having to be dependent on each other again. Definitely, and I think that's been missing for a long time. Like, I mean, I can live my life without talking to anyone if I want to, mm. and I think that's sad that I can do that. I don't want to. That's mm. not how I live, but. Fences are about you don't need to be you don't need a relationship with your neighbours, so why why talk to them why engage with them? Mm. Yeah. Um, I just got back from uh, Greece and Turkey, 
and you can I was speaking to someone in Istanbul actually a mm. tour guide and he he was talking about how difficult obviously the inflation's been insane the last three years with their hyperinflation I think they had 96% last year and that's what they talk about like I'm sure yep. it's probably higher than that Hi. like they tell us it's 6% or whatever here but it's definitely higher <laughs> but um I think the you know that two daughters live at home um obviously the him and his wife but one of them said it to me actually and I think it, I think he said to me a lot of people don't like the president prime minister whatever he is mm. but because they have such a good family community and like a connection with each other and they're all brothers and they know each other and they're all cousins and like they're all like they love each other as if they're brothers anyway they won't fight over who's over political views but mm. the also the 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 way that they come together to actually survive in a, a hyperinflation environment i don't know if australia you know it'd be difficult for a lot of people here to go you know we're all moving into one house and we're all going to yep. work together because there's no working together and there's also this idea and like you know it's why wogs when they come here they all you know they do really well because they employ each other they help each other they eat together yep. you know they live together um, and there's all that. Um, there's a book which I started reading as part of my permaculture studies course, which is written by a guy called David Holmgren. He's one of the two people who really started up permaculture. He was a young guy when he did, and he wrote this book called Retro Suburbia, mm. and it's got this great story, which is over two or three chapters early on in the thing, where he talks about this typical Aussie suburban street. And he writes little chunks about it at different times. So what it was like back in the old days when the immigrants were living there Mm -hmm. and people were growing things and sharing things and then going through the era we're in now where everyone's got fences and no one talks and everyone's at work. And then post-collapse, like post-peak oil, post-economic collapse and how the fences start coming down and people share and people work together Mm. and there's no water supply anymore. So they start building tanks and sharing their roof spaces. And it's a really lovely idea. And I, I, I kind of oscillate between the positivity of that kind of we'll get it together and we'll work out how to live as a community again. And the society will collapse and a bunch of idiots will just, you know, cause a whole lot of problems. Yeah. Look, I, I did my permaculture design course in 2014 and I'm about to move on to after I, go to Harvey Bay for six weeks to start the job there. I'm going to move to um, the guy who actually got me onto permaculture. Uh, he's got 30 acres just at the back of Nambour here and we're mm. going to live there and we're going to get it all um, started. It's ba- it started, but get it all growing. Get it moving along. Yeah, it's like I see that that will be the future, and like it, but it's interesting to see how that can integrate to the cities. Well, small and, holdings are so much more efficient. Yeah, and I think, you know, you drive – it's actually I've just got so many things coming through, but the the one when I was in Cyprus, I asked my um, grandma why the because she's like, oh, all this used to be you know um, grape vines, but Cyprus had this certain sort of grape that wasn't you know the European Union said that it's shit, so then they just destro- Ugh, they destroyed them, they just tore, tore them all out. But now they brought the European grape in because apparently it's better for whatever probably what they wanted to import. But yep. now they're all rows. Yeah, they're just like um, vin- like your typical vineyard with yep. um, you know, rows of um, vines. But I I, wa- I wonder what it was before, like whether because they said it was messy and it wasn't productive and you know it didn't produce enough enough grapes. And you you can imagine it was probably like integrated with olive trees and you know vegetables yep. in between, and it was probably more of a food forest than what yeah, they much want. More yeah, and probably like. 
all sorts of stuff growing through it. Wildlife fitted in amongst it. Mm. You know, they probably had agricultural systems where they were trellising away where the goats and the sheep and whatever else could go through it. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, it's, and, and that I, there's there's some people taking permaculture to a commercial level at the moment because for a long time it was just home gardeners and people who could afford to be a bit self indulgent. But I think it's kind of I think it's coming to a new a new. I'm seeing a lot of stuff now where it's people with you know 100 acres going well. Let's use permaculture principles. And I saw an interview with a guy in the US who bought a broken down corn farm and um, turned it into a massive permaculture property. Mm. And he said, every year I do less work and I take longer holidays, and every year it produces more food. Yeah. And I'm just like, and he's, I mean, he's 15, 20 years in. I'm just like, that's that's amazing because he's put the time into setting up. A system. Food security. Yeah. Proper, proper food security. Food security for, but he's not, I mean, on that hundred acres, he's feeding heaps of people. Not, not He's not looking after himself. Mm. He's feeding people everywhere around him. And I think, I think that's, that's really interesting. I mean, the whole COVID thing and thinking about societal collapse, the, the way that kind of allowed that focus to kind of come into my mind at least. Mm. That led me to getting my firearms license, which was a very interesting twist. Like, I've been wanting to learn how to shoot for years, and I went, if this world falls over, I want to eat meat. I'm not growing <laughs> vegetables and living off that. That's not okay. <laughs> so I went, right, that's it. I need to learn to hunt. So as once the weather gets a bit warmer and everything, I'm gonna, I'm, I've already got the weapons set up, and I've got the skills, and I've got the license. I'm like, I need to improve this. So my goal is to get to the point where I can go out and feed myself for a week. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. To your society collapse. Actually, for the what you said about sharing and, you know, everyone starts to share a um, a water tank. I think mm. if people actually started to share in communities, we would... I think the government actually doesn't want that because there's so many costs that, you know, you've got your separate... The first thing that comes to mind is a separate energy connection or a yep. separate water connection we get yep. like even if you don't use your water it's it must be the Still biggest build. must be the biggest scam in australia i don't know if you don't have unity water you'd have a different one but yeah. unity water charges Asthma. you and it would be the same 150 dollars or something just for the right to have the water so we don't even use water on some of the properties we have and it's just just yeah and they're like we've got a water main running past your property so we're billing you get stuffed yeah exactly and it's it's if you do a subdivision or like strata titling, like if you did a mm. subdivision, you strata each unit, then you need separate rates for all of it. But if you combine yep. all the rates, it's always less. Yeah. So, so I, I had a project which I, um, with, uh, my first proper JV partner, we did two projects together. Um, it ended really badly in the end, but I still learned a lot in the process. And one of them was a townhouse development in South Launceston. So it's about less than a kilometre from where I'm sitting. A big, long, deep block, and I worked with an architect who I really like here in Launceston. He's a not, he's a really decent guy, and um, we designed these houses that fitted into it. And they had really nice gardens. They had water tanks. They had solar systems built in. The roofs were all oriented for solar. And my plan was to work with a company out of um, WA called Power Ledger. You can oh, actually yeah. buy their cryptocurrency, which is yeah, interesting. I've heard about. Um, it. Are they still going? I believe so, yeah. But I, I haven't had a reason to work with them since that project fell over. But the plan was to have a big central meter at the front mm. where you that, that central meter was the one that had a relationship with TAS Networks. Yep. And then behind that was a private grid. 
and everyone had little check meters and solar systems and batteries and whatever, and they could all trade amongst themselves using the PowerLedger software. Mm. And that's all, like PowerLedger uses blockchain for verification and recording of all the transactions and stuff. And I really liked that idea because it's, it's a, a distributed network like that and sharing your resources, whether it's electricity or anything else, is, mm. is more efficient. It's hard and central controllers can't mess with it, mm. but I think it's the right way. I think it's the way we end up in the end. Yeah, well, it has to. But even um, I sent you that email the other day. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but yeah, the communal living one. Yeah, I, I honestly think that's. I mean, I can see it in like not like not like a shitty sense where it's just a house cut up, which is what I've um, done. I mean, I've tried to make it as mm. you know nice as it possibly can on that renovation I did, but because I've lived in one before, I can kind of see the pros and the cons of it. And like one of the, I think it's really nice to have your own shared space, but I can actually see it as like. You know, it's a connected house, but it's actually connected with a bunch of pods and each room's a pod that's your own private space and you've got this shared kitchen. But then you've got one bill coming in for power, um, even if it's not on blockchain or power ledger where you're, you know, maybe sharing your neighbour's solar. If you buy bulk power, you you buy it at a cheaper rate. Yep. So and you can have a solar system which you share amongst everyone. There's a really nice house in um, WA, which I went and saw when I was over there a couple of years ago, called the Gen Y House. Yep. And from the street, it kind of looks like a normal house. It's a nice design, but it's actually three separate houses. Mm. And they are strata titled, so they don't share systems, but they share space. Um, and the idea was that the Gen Y people can't afford a house, so we need to build stuff that fits into the suburb but allows them to be able to afford it. So they were like one bedroom. It was like an apartment building with three one-bedroom flats, mm. but it looks like a house from the outside and it has these communal gardens. And I thought that was a really nice thing that WA were doing. But no, I've um, I got a mate who has a communal residence in Meander, mm. which you'd know where that is. Um, so, and it's ridiculously successful. Um, he, I, I've done a lot of research into communal residences because it's in our planning scheme in Tassie. You yeah. can le- legitimately build a communal residence. There are some standards around it. Mm. I, w- I used to go up to the mainland and speak at a few property investing conferences and talk about Tassie investing and communal residences and the opportunities down here. But it's only been the last maybe year that that it's, I think financially it stacks up better and better because mm. like I'm building, um, well, I'm building at the moment and I'm building a, a super perform, high performing building. It's timber framed up off the ground. It's R4 insulated in the floors and the walls and R5 in the ceilings. And it's got a heat recovery ventilation system. It's airtight. We have membranes on the outside and the inside, full air control, high-performance windows. The thing about it is I'm, I'm building it to all that stuff because I want to, not because I need it for rental, mm. but it's one bedroom. It's just a one-bedroom house. It's not big, mm. and it's going to rent for 350 a week. And it's not in the city. It's like 10-minute drive out of the city. It's out on the edge suburb. Mm. And when you when you're talking about a one bedroom house renting for three fifty, now I know in a mainland sense that's not very expensive, but in a Tassie sense that's an expensive rental. Yeah, right. You can't rent anything here for under three hundred anymore. Just nothing. There's nothing for that. Mm. So and when housing affordability gets like that, communal residences will make sense. But I think the interesting dynamic is um, there's two there's two communities that I think I, if I built it I'd like to cater to, and one is uh, older women, post retirement age women. Because that's that's a, a really growing demographic for housing stress and homelessness mm. nationwide. That's the fastest growing demographic for homelessness. And old women, I think, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, because they've gone through life without a without uh, without a significant amount of income. 
yeah. without a significant amount of savings. A lot of them are post-divorce and they're at, towards the end of their life without a lot of resources mm. and without a lot of security. I've got quite a few tenants who are single, older ladies. And Do they have kids, most of them, or they just... Because this is the other thing. It's like back if we think about traditional Australia, it's like granny flat and yep. Queenslander. Kid, the kids, kids look are, after them. Kids are, yeah, exactly. The, the one I know best, she does, She had a son, but he's, he's died. So she's on her own mm. and she's struggling to pay the bills. And it's... and Yeah, I, I mean, I'm in this interesting spot where... She, she can afford the rent I'm charging her now, but she's probably 30 or 40 bucks a week below market. And I'm like, if I put it up much further, she's going to have to move. And like, do I want to be the, the cause of that? Mm. But then like the bank's doubled my interest rate in the last year. So when I mean, who's paying for it at the yeah. moment? It's me. This is, yeah. this is where when you read the, um, the media's shit and then you go to the comment section and everyone blames the property owners. <laughs> well, I mean, there was that... Um, that senator who's from um, somewhere in WA, he was talking about all the WA rents and how much they've gone up, and he had all the figures in front of him mm. in um, in Parliament, and he's going on and on and on about it, and then his answer was, well, the, real, the investors are the ones making all the money. And I'm like, how do you look at that and go, everything's going up by 15 or 20%, mm. and then not go, but all the, guy, all the people who paid for it with a mortgage have just had their mortgage go up by 100%. Like, how do you not make that connection? I don't, I don't know. There's, I, and it, the problem is it's going, I, I think it'll keep getting worse because the immigration that is coming in, and I don't know if it's happened in Tassie, but every day I get a notification that another builder's gone into yeah. liquidation. No, they're, they're, not, they're not going as fast down here, um, but that's because we have a smaller construction industry and it's moving a bit slower. Mm. I know that it's getting weird and patchy. So the builder who I'm working with, he's a pretty premium builder. He's certainly getting weird little gaps in his schedule mm. where like a bank won't happen or a project will fall over and then like just stuff doesn't quite fit. And if that happens too much, it's not like they can put a gap in their pay, in their cost base. Mm. Like they've still got to pay their staff. They've still got to keep people employed. I mean, that's why he's taking on a couple of little projects for me because it's it's due and charge and he gets paid cash. So he gets to fill in the gaps and keep his staff employed. Mm. And it does help that the high performance one, he gets to do really high level detailing and practice that on a small project before he goes and quotes big ones. Mm. So it kind of works, but yeah, it's a bit weird. The um, market down here at the moment. I mean, nothing's really, nothing's going down in price, but, and nothing's getting more affordable, but I can't like, I mean, I can't see anything causing anything to go down, but Everything's unaffordable and it's just staying that way. Mm. And when you consider that they're going to bring 300,000 people in, that Australia is very picky when they pick Im- immigrants. Like They normally have money, don't they? You have to have money to come into Australia generally. So, oh, you, Or unless you're a student and you just buy your way in. Yeah, or if you're, I suppose, a very skilled worker that we need. So we have a labour shortage. Can't Maybe that will change if things slow down. But we have no rentals. And then you're going to go and put 300,000 people in. So if you scatter them around Australia, Sunshine what? Coast, you know, say it gets yeah. 10,000, we need 10,000 more or five, 4,000 more homes. We can't build it because we don't have the construction industry to support that. Yeah. So it's actually, it's the perfect storm to um, become, you know, rental prices just skyrocket. Yeah, look, I, I'm not seeing labour prices come off at all because let's face it, we've all got to pay for life and life's getting more expensive. Mm. Um, rentals definitely going up, 
the only thing I'm not seeing go up is the prices, at least in a Tassie sense. I'm not seeing, like, there was a period where I'd see the same house sell 12 months apart and it was a $100,000 difference in sale price. Mm. No, and you're just up. like, someone owned that for a year and paid their mortgage and made a hundred grand, like, just insane. It's, um, it's still, I think, going to, um, you know, I think Australia is, you know, lucky in that sense. That's what I noticed being... It's like you know that you know the whoever owns all the diamonds in the world. What are they called? The uh, I, don't know. I don't know what that family, the, what that yeah, family is. Yeah, they control is. the whole supply, don't and they? They control the supply. No different. Australia is no different in that in the sense that we have literally the most land per square meter in the world, yeah. and you can't build anything anywhere as well. So when you restrict it so much, I think it becomes harder and more expensive to build. Like before we even start building, it costs us $100,000 to just start the bloody thing. Oh, just planning, permits, building surveyors, all the other stuff. Yeah, it's a, and it's like, a no, I'm not I'm not factoring in the hours of time. You're just like reading through pre-starts and just shit like that where you have to do just rubbish before you can start building. And like all your, you know, swims and workplace health and safety yeah, stuff. Yeah, because you're, you're dealing with it like right at the pointy end with the construction. I mean... At the moment, I'm in the process of applying for my license, so I don't have anyone directly working for me, so I don't have that OH&S workplace safety stuff. But yeah. once you add that, the the overheads, the just the the I think they call it white tape, the paperwork Red that gets in the way of getting everything. Yeah, there's I think there's a term where you where it's like just paper, stupid paperwork, mm. and it's just the inefficiency we're adding to our systems is just nuts. Mm. The one in the Harvey Bay job I got to start, I couldn't... Like, if you think about... I mean, obviously, that's my problem because we're not from Harvey Bay, but they want a pre-start meeting for the most, you know, simple job. It's We're going to, you know, cut the ground, put some pipes in the ground and put concrete on it for storage. But it's... um They want a pre-start and they want my engineers to be there, which is going to cost like $2,000 to drive them up to Harvey Bay to have yep. a one-hour chat before I start. Not even one hour. It'll be 10 minutes before you start a job that yep. I'm going to... F- cut and fill and then put a pipe in the ground. Yep. I said, it's why are we, why is the council want to waste? There's two people coming out from the council. So why are they wasting their time too? Wow. <laughs> I mean, we had one, we had one recently where we put a crossover in up in Burnie, which is on the Northwest coast of Tassie. And we put a crossover in for a new driveway. The way my builder was going to do it, the council made it. So they had to have an inspection before the crossover went in. So once everything's cut and formed, they have to cut. It's like, these people do crossovers every day. Just trust them. Mm. No, we have to do an inspection. So they come out and do an inspection. They're like, well, we want you to cut the concrete just a little bit differently and we want you to change the way the asphalt interfaces with it and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, what difference will that make? Well, we just prefer that. Yeah. And it ended up costing it. us like $3,000 in mess around for zero difference in outcome. Yeah. And it, it's... It's everywhere through the whole industry. And, and this is what then adds, like, as when someone says the the property investor puts the rent up, it's like, well, the, the rent's up because the property investor had to spend another $100,000 they didn't need to. Then then you got the Greens coming out saying, let's, let's stop the property investors putting their rent up. So what's the property investor going to do when they can't put their rent up on their property? Investors will just going? leave Australia. Yeah. They just, we're going to, they're going to invest in some other asset class It'll and you make go, the right. and, and I was work. talking to someone the other day, and they're like, yeah, but that's really good because then a, a renter's going to buy that house. I'm like, no, an immigrant's going to buy that house, and then yeah. the renter's going to get kicked out, and there's no new house for the renter. Because yeah. the immigrant came here with money, potentially, because mm. that's one of the criteria for being able to immigrate, or they came here with a job. Mm. The renter, like, I mean... 
How many renters are going, well, I'll buy the rental property I live in? Yeah, no one. Not yeah. many. And, and a lot of them don't even want to. So they're just going to be squeezed out of something that they don't even want. Well, I mean, how the, the multiple between your income and your cost of your housing mm. is so high that the ability to just even save a deposit is really, really hard. Mm. Now... How did, how, did, how did I do it? When I bought it, let me think, what did I pay? I paid 145 for my first house, and at the time I was earning 35 grand a year. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a pretty good multiple when you think about it. Mm. What would that but same job I, be paying now? Well, the multiple for the house I live in to my salary now would be eight to nine. Right. So, and that house that I bought back then for three fifth, oh, for, sorry, whatever I paid for it, 145, um, that if, 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 it's, if it's sold today, it'd be 650 or seven. Salaries haven't tripled in that time. Yeah, it is the problem in Australia. I mean, it's a problem everywhere. In um, Turkey, the the guy that was talking to me said five years ago it was like a pipe dream. If you worked really hard, you would probably be able to buy a house really, really hard and pulled your money together with your partner. But he said now it's just there's no chance. We're not buying anything. Isn't that interesting? Because I, I look at Turkey and I think that would be a great place. Pre-hyperinflation, I looked at Turkey I'm just like, if you're going to own a house somewhere else, Istanbul would be fantastic. Istanbul the houses such a were reasonably city. affordable and you could get a visa for a reasonable sort of system. Like you could get in there and live there on and off. I but think it's one of the most no desire to leave the country. Yeah. Well, what, being over there, honestly, it made me want to not go back in a hurry, but I actually appreciate mm. Australia more. Even though we are in a, you know, we have a police state, whatever we you know, rules up to our nose. It's We have a lot of opportunities too. Like, it is a land of opportunity, really. And I think you can... I don't know. I look at things like um, Bundaberg or, um, you know, Harvey Bay. There's yep. probably places near you where it's like this... Or Actually, I look at the Gold Coast and I look at Sunshine Coast and go, well, where, Sunshine Coast is where the Gold Coast was like 10, 15 years ago. So there's that. But then yep. you look at Harvey Bay and then you're like, that's Sunshine Coast 20 years ago. So you have yep. the opportunity to do what someone else is has done in that area. Because you do we're if you're willing growing. to be mobile and move yeah. and change... And look, I, people say they can't save up for a deposit. I'm like, so leave Sydney, change jobs, go somewhere yeah. else, move to the regions, do something else. Like there's there's a way around it. But should you have to leave where your family is and where you grew up and where your social network is well, just to be able to make something of your life? I don't know because my obviously my my grandparents left Cyprus because the the Turkish invaded in yep. 74 and then dad left Adelaide and went to Sydney, realised it was too fucking expensive and couldn't make anything, mm-hmm. so then moved to Yalara. Yeah, um, in the middle of Australia, where he found a good job, and then met yep. mum, and they moved to Sunshine Coast. So, I mean, you have to want to move, but um, well, some people I know lived in Sydney. Um, I, I know them through property circles when I did a lot of training. Was on them off stages, mm. and they couldn't afford anything in Sydney. Couldn't do anything, and they went out to some like like West Wyalong or some random place right out in Western New South Wales, and bought a block of land with a house. They subdivided the block of land in half. They went to the council and just did a hand-drawn sketch, and the council's like, title approved, <laughs> like cowboy days. Yeah. And then they bought a house that was, like, cut up, delivered on a truck, put it on. They did what they had to do, out, and they were working in Sydney, and they'd be driving, like, four, six hours west every weekend to work all weekend and go back. Mm. And that gave them enough money to buy a crap block of land in Sydney and build a little house, mm. and then leveraged and leveraged and leveraged. 
I think the opportunity is still there. I just think the quality of life that we're living now is lower than what it used to be across the board. And, yes, I, I agree we've got opportunity. And, yeah, it's a great country. And, I mean, would you want to live in other countries where you're basically being poisoned through your food and you've got really almost no way around it? Are we not being – is that not happening here? <laughs> yeah, but you, we can get around it if you're aware, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm not sure you can in some other countries. Mm. I mean, I look at what's going on in America at the moment with the lab-grown food being um, approved for consum- human consumption. And I just look at that. I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Like, how, how are we in a world where we think that's a valid way to operate? Mm. I was listening to a podcast by Matt Barry the other, with an interview with Matt Barry the other day. I think he's an interesting character because I don't always agree with what he says, but he's talking about Australia being in a GFC-like bubble. Mm. I think it was a, a really interesting idea. He's basically just saying our property market's at, uh, inflated to the hilt. Mm. You agree or disagree? I agree it's inflated. Is it a bubble, though? I mean, we have this underpinning. I mean, you mentioned it before, immigration. We have this underpinning mm. human pressure. This I'll, uh, There's this guy who I listen to sometimes. He talks about human osmotic pressure. Where are people moving and what is that doing to our world? And we have this big mass of people coming into this country every year that need somewhere to live. Plus, we have all this money flowing into this country needing something to buy, even if no one lives in it. Like, I mean, you think about Melbourne, big chunks of real estate there just sitting there empty because it's a place to store money where, you know, the government's not going to just take it from you. And I think those those couple of factors combined, plus the fact that, you know, the government's so invested in the property market, like, it's the biggest game in town. Mm. Our banks are leveraged to the hill. I mean, they've got nothing else to lend to. We've got no manufacturing sectors. Mm. We're not making vehicles. We're not making planes. We're not making anything. Like, we ship all our raw materials overseas. We've got, the, we've got this really simple economy. So I agree with a lot of what he said, but I think the problem is it's so entrenched that it's – I don't think it is really a bubble. I just think – he talks about it like a Ponzi scheme. I could probably see that being a bit more true. Yeah. I agree with that. But 300,000 people is, I actually think our immigration isn't that ridiculous when you think about, I think Cyprus has 50,000 refugees. Mm. It's a, it's like a third or a quarter of the size of Tasmania. Yep. And like they just turned up and they've got to yep. deal with that. So Well, they just have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas we, I mean, and they make it work. And I think that's the thing. Like, I think that whole, that quote about, you know, good times create um, weak men. I think we're going to, you know, we obviously that's where we're at now. It's like we Australia has had it really good, and I do think we still do have it really good. Oh, yeah. And it's how we, you know, how aware we are to know that what will unfold and whether we can deal with it. I think preparing yourself is necessary. And when people, you know, complain about stupid things, I think in the West, because we've had it so good, that's where we then come up with stupid things to then whinge about, which is what I speak about. Like, oh, yep. I'm not a man, like, don't call me a he, I'm a, I'm a they, or, you know, the stupidities like that where you get offended over nothing is because yep. we have no real problem to actually worry about. So we'll make problems. Uh, I think that, I think you're, you're spot on there. It's just like, that's not a real issue. No. And I mean, it is a real issue for those people, but they've made it that way. They've created that as a real issue. Yeah. Especially well, in how, I mean, how much of that is the food that people consume <laughs> and the effect that's having on them? How much of it is the society? How much is it of it is our secondary schools and what they say and teach? Mm. I, I mean, it's, it's such a level of complexity. I mean, I have opinions, but I just don't 
care mm. enough. I like my life where I live, and if I stress too much about what was going on in the rest of the I, I observe it because it interests me a lot. Yeah. But if I got too stressed about it, I'd, I'd probably lose my mental state. Like, start questioning my identities and genders. <laughs> I try not I just, to, like, with, with the, Euro, the whole European thing or the Ukraine thing, actually, like, you know, it's just, it's happened, it happened in Iraq, happened in Afghanistan, it's happening here, it's happened oh. so many times. But what's interesting is when you start to think about what, who benefits from Ukraine? So you've got oh, military-industrial yeah. complex, which is going to sell weapons to war. So you've got that. You've got the West, which aids money to a country to help them, which then is going to get interest on the loan repayments when they've yep. rebuilt. So the West is going to have... Yep. Basically, the West is acting like a bank. We borrow money, give it to them. Mm. JP Morgan and um, BlackRock, BlackRock and went then, in and set up all the re, the uh, the reconstruction finance yeah. setups. So then you're going to rebuild the country. So then and it's like, well, make what, money all the way in. Did they, did they just do a deal with Russia to like? Is Russia actually on their side? These are the questions you start to ask. You're like, is the Russia and US actually going? Well, we need a bad guy here. So you're the bad guy. You invade it. We'll make all the money. You'll benefit because this, this, and this, and yeah. then. You know, we'll all just pretend nothing happened again because while we rebuild, we make heaps of money. Yep. And we do it to another and, country. And we all got to you know, use up a bit of surplus military stock that, you know, was was due for uh, retirement yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, the games that get played on, such a, on a higher level and then you kind of understand why they want to keep everyone kind of dumbed down and just doing their and, nine And stressing about, you know... The, the random crap that's close to you and getting angsty yeah. about, you know, the, what your gender is and what got said to you at school and what's getting taught to you. I'm just like, ah. Oh. And worrying about, I actually don't know if the Australian re- recession is going to happen and, like, but the amount of fear that's coming out for it, everyone's talking about it being, but, like, everyone's wages, are, like, everyone just got a pay rise, like, 5%, I think, or 6% in hospitality. Sure, it's not keeping up with inflation, but the doom and gloom makes it sound like we're all going to die. Yeah, but we we love that. We love watching the media and, I mean, I think as a society, we love watching the news and stressing about it. And we've got a lot of people who've got nothing better to do than, you know, get on, get on the ABC and watch Insiders on a Sunday morning and go, oh, look how bad everything is. This is really terrible. And, you know, just swallow the agenda that's being pushed. That was one of the funniest things about COVID because I haven't watched media for years. Like, and during COVID, you went, "Oh, I want to see what's going on," and I turn, you turn on the TV and you turn on the ABC and you're like, "When did the ABC stop being unbiased? Like, when did that happen? Yeah. Did I miss this?" Because the and you're like, "Why is there a gender on on show? Like, why are they so clearly pushing a line? Like, mm. when did this happen?" Because th- you have this idea because you grew up. I grew up in, in you know in the eighties and the ABC was the unbiased government funded no one owned them report mm. like they, the reporting um and you would just go during covid you're just like what happened where did, where did the abc go <laughs> was it ever there or did they just tell you it was unbiased i used to watch it when i, I mean maybe i was younger and i was unsophisticated and unaware and not able to critically see it but i felt like i mean it used to call government out on stuff it used to call corporations out on stuff Hmm. And you just, I don't know, you, you didn't, I, I didn't feel like it was just pulling an agenda from whatever the time is. But just the way some of the questions are asked now, it's like you're coming from a place where there is no question. You, you're like just assuming that everything 
it, the basis for this question is all just true. Mm. Like, the world is the way we see it, and therefore, why are you like this? And, I mean, yeah, I mean, some of the, the, the voice will be a really interesting one. Like, that's going to... That's a very interesting thing at the moment. Like, What's that's showing voice? agendas really clearly. How much... I mean, what other political thing has managed to create entire television series just to support it? What's the voice? Is that the actual where they the sing? The random thing that's coming up. I don't know about it. Wow! So there's this. They're, they're calling it. I think the correct name is the voice to parliament, and we are going to change our constitution to rec- to um, recognise Aboriginal people, which you know no one has an issue with. No one in their right mind, but in the process. It allows the government to then use that to create this legislative bo- advisory body that can do what all this stuff, and it's mm. really open-ended. So we're going to have a referendum on it soon, mm. but it's in the media everywhere. And you've got these Aboriginal leaders coming out saying, if you don't support the voice, you're un-Australian and you're racist and you're like just like a Trump supporter. But this is So this is my problem with – I actually had this chat – um, with Sophie just before this podcast started because she said, don't you think that you're creating the same um, kind of division by attacking all of these minority groups? Like I've got, like if I have a problem with like Black Lives Matter or the trans, the um, LGTBQ, whatever the fucking yeah. letters are on the alphabet movement, it's like it's not the it's not the underlying principle of like homosexuality that I have a problem with. It's the movement that is created that actually has nothing to do with accepting gays because I don't have a problem with gays or black people for the matter or women working if they want to work but it's this it's the movements that, or plant-based if you want to be plant-based that's fine but the go, vegan, go nuts the vegan just movement don't make it the only option <laughs> yeah. and don't prescribe it for everyone else and it's the things that when they brainwash because obviously like they've been brainwashing this you know it's like with the vaccine they brought out like the vaccine to the Aboriginal communities to say that they're the most vulnerable. We need to vaccinate them. It's like, what? Like what yeah. science says they're the most vulnerable? <laughs> exactly. And then we, everyone goes, Oh no, oh, the poor Aboriginal people that like, we need to support this. It's like, there is an agenda here to vaccinate Aboriginal people. It's not for their safety. No. And it's no different to what you're talking about now. I didn't, don't know about it, but I can assume it's like, they're going to use our emotions to feel sorry for them to vote for something that's got nothing to do with them and isn't actually going to benefit them in the slightest. Yeah, and I, I heard a really good interview with someone who is an Australian commentator and he said, I've looked back at all the referendums and he said, the issues about referendums is when everyone treats it like a fait accompli, the Australian population always voted down. Right. He's like, we don't like being told that this is the way it's going to be. As yeah. a people, and I, I kind of like that as yeah. a culture, that we're like, what? This is how it's going to be? I'll show you. <laughs> and you- I've watched that happening in the media where the ABC and the and the, even the commercial media, they're talking about how amazing the voice is and how, how important it is, and they're showing these voices of these people who are, like, amplifying the, the – they're amplifying the yes case, and then they're picking really little snippets of the no case that make – that make it sound really racist and extremist. Yeah, that's what they do. Like, you just get out of the mainstream media and you can hear some really rational discussion on both sides. Yeah. But they have a, they had a panel, like a Q&A panel or something. I didn't watch the show, but I looked at the panel and like one of the guys on the panel said, why don't we have a balanced discussion about this? Mm. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's really important. We should have a balanced discussion. And he went, right, let's go around the panel. And he asked everyone on the panel what their view was and everyone was a pro, yes, the voice thing. Oh, he's really? like... So how are we having a balanced discussion if all of us think yes? <laughs> At least he said it. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it's like the 
you know, anyone who tried to debate the vaccine was a nutcase and then they would never actually have a debate. And I think that's what, I don't know, Joe Rogan come out and said, let's get them both on my podcast and we'll have a, a proper oh, debate. Yeah, and then, then like managed to get like I was a massive amount, like a million dollar plus of donations to charity yeah. of their choice if they came and had a debate and they're still and the guy's still like, no, nah, can't yeah. do that. No. Nah. That's we don't we don't debate science. I'm like, what do you think science is? Yeah. Of course it's debated. It's ideas. You test it. You What they mean yeah. is what they mean is they're gonna be cut off by big farmer and they won't get their paycheck if they if they stand uh, up and argue. I don't know. I mean I my wife and I really early on during when COVID was looking scary and rough, I remember having this discussion with her. I was out in the garden working and she came out and had a chat. And I said, look, we're really going to have to think about, like, we, our kids are not vaccinated for anything, nothing. My, literally, my, my daughter has had one injection in her life, and that was vitamin K when she was born because she was really jaundiced. Since then, she's had not a single needle in her. Ah, anesthetic for some teeth. That's it. My son, nothing. I don't think he's ever had a needle of any description at all. Mm. And they're 11 and 13. Um, and they're alive and healthy and there's nothing wrong with them. Um, I basically stopped getting injections of any description maybe 15, 20 years ago when I had a really bad reaction and my doctor decided I probably had cancer. So I had a reaction to a vaccine that I was getting for a travel because you go to the travel yeah. doctor and you get whatever needles they tell you. Yeah, yeah. And then I had this bad reaction. I'm like, nope, screw this, I'm out. And my wife and I had this conversation. We're like, and my wife hasn't had vaccines for years either. So we had this discussion about, well, what are we going to do with our kids if COVID really is as bad as the media is saying? Mm. We're like, we'd rather die, mm. run the risk of dying. I mean, all our research said it's it's a bad cold. Mm. Friends who'd had it said it's a bad cold because they had friends around the world who had it way before Australia got it. And I'm just like, no, we'll stick to, our, stick to our belief. And we are literally the only people in our family who aren't vaccinated. Yeah, I'd say my... Go- there's like going in every direction. There's like three of us. Oh, the initial videos that came out for COVID, like there was people in the streets just dropping. Falling over. <laughs> but where are those videos gone? It's so hard to find them now. But like that, and where are the people dropping? They never dropped. They never just walked along the street and just collapsed. Actually, they are now on the football fields because they've been vaccinated. And yeah, they yeah. And, and they won't talk about it. I mean, anyone who talks about it, like look at the behavior. Someone says... I, did, I got vaccinated and I had a bad reaction and they get cancelled, they get disappeared, no one will listen to them. Mm. I mean, it's the same thing that's going on with Mel Gibson, his new film, the one he's worked on about the child trafficking. None of the big, none of the big chains or distribution system, systems will distribute the movie. Mm. You can find stuff about it if you look, but it's not in the mainstream because it's an issue no one wants to talk about because it's mm. uncomfortable and there's a lot of big names involved. And Ukraine might have something to do with it. Eastern Europe has always been human trafficking part of the world. We just always thought it was somewhere else. I mean, you've got, I think of the figure at the moment is just under half a million children go missing unexplained in America every year. They're out. It's a lot. And yet we don't talk about it. Yet, you know, four billionaires in a sub have an accident and that's worldwide media for, um, for two weeks. We won't talk I mean, about the submarine. I don't want to get into that as well. <laughs> so I'm gonna let's let's steer back to property before we um, wrap it up. What do yep. you think the as a property developer like in the game? What do you think the biggest hurdles are to actually fixing the communities and the housing crisis? Let's talk about the issues a little bit too. We have a we have a housing fabric in our in our world that is old, 
uh, poorly insulated, uh, poor health outcomes, and we need to kind of deal with that. We have a building code that is not even the minimum standard. It is really just addressing the shit that is completely unacceptable that nobody is fixing without legislation. Really, the building code should be not even part of the discussion in construction. We we maybe should have one that works, but but what we have is terrible. What we need to be building is, first of all, more efficient and healthier homes, more comfortable, naturally staying warmer, like super insulation, air sealing, good air quality inside these buildings. If we did that straight away, everyone would be living a better life. But the public don't even know that's an option. They don't even know that exists. And so that discussion needs to change. And then there's the social element of housing. I think multi-generational housing is has such good outcomes. When you've got two or three or four generations in a house, you have a much better social dynamic. You have better mental outcomes, better health outcomes. You have better just – it's positive in a lot of ways. And I think we need to build a housing stock that allows for that. We need to – Tassie, we build four-bedroom, two-bathroom houses, and that's not what we need. We need a lot of one- and two-bedroom places. What's that? At least you've mostly got a backyard. Yeah, 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 but but the blocks are getting smaller. I mean, they're not Queensland small, but there's a new housing estate which is full of terrible houses, really badly built, and um, it's just on the um, south side of town, and it's uh, the blocks out there are about five or 600 square metres. Now, that sounds big in a, you know, Victoria – I mean, Victoria – one of my mates, where he lives, the housing, the blocks there are 300 square metres and they're building massive houses on them. We are two, I think we have 200 square metres here. And yeah, they, yeah, they fill you, up you the can whole, get even smaller in the Goldie. You fill up the whole property. Yeah, yeah, it, like, side to side to side. <laughs> but what happens in a society where you don't have food security or with a block of land like that? You, yeah, you don't. I mean, obviously Sunshine Coast has like its pockets, but then it has farms surrounding it, but that's slowly yeah. changing too. And I mean, you don't want that. You don't want to be trucking your food miles. You want, like you said before, the WOG communities where you've got lemon trees and orange trees in the street. Well, I think I think part of the issue is if uh, someone like me, I start talking about sustainability and people start yelling at me about the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and the New World Order. And I'm like... But see, this is another thing where it's like black rights turned into a movement. It's like we do need sustainability. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Sustainability now, has been the, hijacked yeah, by the New World Order shit. Exactly, yes. What really should have happened was sustainability is a good thing. Let's use less resources. Let's have healthier houses. Let's build cities where you don't need cars and you can have community. Mm. Let's have electric vehicles because they're cool, they're fast, and they're fun. <laughs> Let's not have them in a controllable way. Like, let Let's not have some Muppet who can turn them off with a switch anywhere in the world. Like there's a there's a company in Victoria doing Land Rovers with Tesla motors, but they don't have any of the Tesla software in it. I'm like, that's awesome. You mean I can go as fast as I like, I can drive a Land Rover, and I can plug it in and charge it up on some solar panels, and nobody can turn it off remotely. Perfect. Right. Give me well, one the, of them. The company's pulling them out of Teslas, or they're buying them direct from Tesla? They're buying wrecked Teslas. All oh, right, that's smart. Yeah, so they just take a wrecked Tesla, they put the motor and the batteries and any batteries they need to top up. They just, yeah, literally, he's he's, work, he's just moved to a massive workshop because his business is going so well. Yeah, right. Like Land Rovers, the worst thing about them is they're unreliable as hell. Yeah. Put a Tesla motor in it, you can go anywhere. <laughs> um, I've heard about sitting on the, I've heard not good things about sitting on the battery there. Yeah, it's interesting because like electro EMF, 
electromagnetic radiation and electromagnetic frequencies. There's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Like, what the hell is 5G and why do we have it? Is it just so we can have better data and the world can be better? Or is it really as bad as a lot of people say? And when I first heard people crusading against it, I went, ah, yeah, whatever. And then the more you look into it, the more you get worried about this stuff. Hmm. And the more you start turning your Wi-Fi router off and then your smart meter that's bloody connected to the power grid and you're like, that's I don't want that on my house. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, I, and yeah, the electric cars, you're like, well, it's talking to 15 different systems and the internet and the satellites and everything else. How much of it's affecting me? How much of it's not? I don't know. The smart meters need to be, because my cousin that actually sent me your, um, your account, he, his boss was telling me that a lot there, there, cause they do that. That's their sparkies and they add smart meters to your house. Mm. And it's really good money at the moment. You know, I said, Oh, don't you reckon it'll end in like 10 years when you've, you know, fitted off all these houses. And he said, no, we're already replacing some that we've already fixed. Like yeah. we've already installed, sorry. So now we're going to replace them because they've obviously broken down or like they need upgrading. Like I don't think it's as, it's a cost. It's like going no, to be I got a meter next door that's like 60 years old on my mm. investment property. I own the one next door. It's 60 years old. It's a disc that spins. Yeah. It's never going to break down. As long as power goes through it, it's just going to work. Whereas they, the smart shit we've got, it's just constantly replacing it. And then, yeah, and, and then how what I hate the about it is like, one, they know my power usage at all times of the day, every day. And two, they can turn it off remotely if they bloody want to. Mm. Which will be interesting, actually, if they start tracking the data better for all the times of use, then they can start charging based on the time that you turn your power on. Or they could more efficiently schedule their generation needs. Yeah, but that won't happen. But it could. Like- <laughs> actually, no, nah, it will happen. That is actually probably the smarter thing because, like, obviously, when you export power to the grid and it just runs along until someone uses it, it's a waste. Yeah. Yeah. But if they can, you know, schedule where yeah. the power is going to go, then... So I, I come from an IT background. You could very quickly go, they know my house has solar. They know how much of a system it generates. They've got history on how much it flows in and out. They could very quickly go, let's correlate that to the weather let's correlate that to everything else and let's make sure base load is programmed correctly because we know it's going to be a sunny day or the solar systems in these order. You could do this really well and you could have great outcomes for technology with humanity. And that's what they mm. kind of sell. It's not what they deliver though. They keep delivering control. Mm. And that, that annoys me because we, we could have a, a high tech, healthy, decent world. I mean, even down to the fact like these heat, re- the receipts, I've got a, something somewhere. Receipts that you get at the bloody cash register, the shit that's on them is an endocrine disruptor. Yeah. Why? Like, why is that allowed? Why isn't it just paper? Why isn't it just a dot matrix printer on a paper? Yeah. Why? Why does it have to be, and why does it have to be something that you leave it in your dashboard, center console of your car for 10 minutes and it's buggered? Yeah. I don't don't understand. There's, There's too many decisions that are made that seem to be purely economically driven or maliciously driven with no moral compass. And it, that's where I start getting a little annoyed. Mm. I like think the awareness, shit houses. awareness of um, obviously you decided to do seven lots instead of 20 because of you want, because of, you know, morally. It wasn't economic. It was but these also, people can have orchards. These people can have chickens. They could have a sheep or a goat. But this isn't, that's... I mean, someone would say to you, well, you're not helping the housing problem because you could have built another 13. But 
I agree that you're probably creating a better house so that um, you are long-term solving the house problem because the, maybe the whole family will want to remain living there and they won't have to go out and live on their own. Well, that's it. You could potentially have three or four generations living on that, you know, six, seven, eight thousand square metre block and they could provide 60, 80% of their food needs without leaving their property. Mm. You could have a family where people can afford to stay at home because they don't need to go out and find the resources to cover food, water, all the other stuff. It'll be interesting. I think the next um, kind of few years living out on this property, because I haven't grown food for probably, oh, I think I got rid of the chickens about a year ago and before probably six years since I've been like actively had a really good garden and mm. it'd be good to get back into it and see how you know, there's, gonna, there's a caretaker on the property. So and then there's a principal place of residence and then um, there'll just be people helping one of them yep. being me. So there'll be a few of us on the property to be able to see how we can work together as a community and how much food we can grow and just distribute around because none of us yeah. need to sell it. So it'll be just giving it and showing how much food we can actually, you know. So produce. you're not allowed to sell it? Oh, we can sell it. No, we're setting it up so we can, but I mean, no one, we're not, we don't need to. You're not to. there to make money. We're not there yeah. to make money. So it's not like we're setting up a farm to um, profit from, but yeah, obviously we, we can sell it, but. Yeah, well, one of the one of the weird things that happened last year, the year before, Victoria brought in these laws that if you're a hunter in Victoria and you, or even if you like have bees or whatever, you're not allowed to share your the the pro the what comes out of your hunt or your bees or your garden. You're not yeah. allowed to legally share that stuff anymore because it's not safe. Yeah, that's it's bullshit. Not been certified. That's bullshit. I reckon it's the um, it, they don't want you to do that. <laughs> it's not the safety. It's the I mean, maybe it is. Maybe they are actually so concerned, but I doubt it. I think it's more to do with if people actually realise that we can all feed each other, then they don't need us anymore. Well, a decentralised... I've never really thought a lot about government, but the more I think about it, the more we need a government that will take care of the big shitty stuff that we don't want to take care of for ourselves, like a, a road network and you know sewer systems and stormwater and the big, the big systems that are, mm. that are cost-ineffective for private sector to do. We need a government that'll do that and the rest of the time just stays out of the way. Unless there's a problem, just stay out of it. The thing is they're getting less and less, you know, they're sticking their nose more and more in. It's like, I don't know if you know much about the Maruchidor CBD. No, well, but I'm assuming it's micromanaged to hell. <laughs> no, well, the Lend-Lease did feasibilities for years and could never make it stack up. It was an old golf course in the centre of Maruchidor. Oh, yeah. And then the council decided they'd do it and it was a you know, they lost money on the development. So why is the public, why is the council becoming developers and why are we using our tax money to lose money? Now, obviously, there will be economic reasons of developing a city. That I don't think, you know, we've got an old town of Maruchidor that's mm. just been neglected now because we're, the attention's on because the CBD. Because they've got this new shiny centre. But it's the smart city. That's what we're building. We're building a smart oh, city. See, we, during, during the COVID time, we went from having one or two security cameras in this town in Launceston to every major intersection has a security camera on it now. Yeah, right. And they're all in domes, hidden away. You can't see them. But you just look up when you're driving around, and this city is so surveilled now, and we're the same. We're a smart city. And we're a, it's long city of a smart UN city, city of gastronomy. And there's all this stuff oh. about UN and... World Economic Forum stuff coming into this city in Launceston. Like, what yeah, the hell right. for? Well, if you, yeah, I mean, I don't want to talk about this conspiracy, but if you follow the pipe up, the line up to Sunshine Coast, you see where all the smart cities are and yeah. then the, the super rail that'll connect us all together. Oh, yeah. Which will be kind so of good. You, smart rail. You'll have a rail connecting all your little five minute cities. Yeah. <laughs>
But it will be good to be able to get to Sydney in like 30 minutes, but that's I don't want to go to the smart city. <laughs> just get on Bonza. But, uh, yeah, I just... A big centrally controlled system is a fragile system. There's no food in the system. Actually, they probably will introduce like your lab food into the system. There'll be big like... Um, yeah. hydroponic setup hydroponic and, greenhouse like um shipping containers yeah or in the i mean you've got their buildings see a lot of a lot of the development included like thousands of square meters of retail and office and i'm like why like are we moving away from that isn't it all empty yeah, yeah. we're not we can't release the stuff we've got now what's going on it's like we develop it's like they designed a city for 20 years ago and they're going to now build it for the next 20 years I find that really weird. Like, I don't, I don't mind public money being used for something that's economically unviable when it's socially very viable and mm. good for a community. Exactly. That's where I think, like in Tassie, um, the state government used to be the land developer. So they would develop the suburbs and roll them out. And it kept the cost down because all the engineering, all the civil works, all the everything was all in-house, all the design. Mm. And what they would do is they'd roll out a suburb and they go, oh, well, here's a chunk for public housing, here's a chunk for the private sector. And blocks of land were like, you know, 20, 30, 40 grand. It wasn't an economic driver. It was, we're just providing a, a service. Mm. Now, you know, you can't get a block of land in this city for under 300 grand. That is actually kind of a better way because if you have the town planners and the architects in council wasting as much money as they want but designing something that people are going to then just build a house on, they're not developing subdivisions. Mm. then I suppose then it's, you know, you're going to get that city you spoke about in Canberra. Yeah, that, that, that? That, that was actually what happened in Canberra because they had this National Capital Development Authority, the NCDC mm. uh, Commission, NCDC, and they had this massive budget and they had all the best theories and they could just do what they liked. Mm. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but it created a really beautiful city to live in. But I also think that that's, you know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't work. It's, that's also how you figure out if it doesn't. But do we really need to experiment when we can just go and see the successful cities around the world and go, why did this work? Like, why is the old city of Istanbul so, like, inviting and, you know, there's people mm. everywhere and there's so many small... I think the one thing you pick up over there is, like, we have massive things here. Like, we have yep. a massive electrical wholesale. That's not a human scale. Yeah, and then over there you've got like little small family business electrical companies, so electrical wholesalers. So you've got um, just more street interaction because you have all these smaller businesses selling things. Yeah, and as I think as humans, we like going into a business where we know the people and they know us. Yeah, and it must and that's be something how they that I really like in Launceston. We don't, we've got more and more, but we we don't have a lot of big businesses. Like if I go into my cafe, they know me by name. They know what I order. I can walk in there and chat to them about everything except my coffee and my coffee shows up in my hand yeah. because it's what it's like. It's a human scale. I can go to the electrical wholesaler here and they're not a chain. They're a local business who, who know me and they're like, oh, and they know who's working for me and they know what I'm doing. And I noticed that when I visited the sunny coast a few years ago and around food and like and produce, that seemed to be a part of it there. It was small stuff. It wasn't chains. We have a really good, we have really good markets. Like farmers yeah. markets, we have quite a lot of them, and we have really good ones. Um, and look, look, there is, but I mean, we have a page called Living in Namble where the you know it's just like a community page, and people mm. are always saying we need a Kmart, we need a you know yeah, big, w. big W. Why yeah. do we need all these? I mean, we got I think we got a big W actually, but they're always big chains and stupid shit like Red Rooster. It's like we don't need that. No. We need more. We need more people wanting to support the deli, so we have less yeah. coals. I don't know if you listen to my podcast where I ranted about Coles and Woolies and Audi. Yeah, probably I did, my actually. favorite one. 
<laughs> well, we don't even have an Audi in Tasmania. Yeah. Well, I mean, you shouldn't have a Coles or Woolies either. There's so much food down there and there's so many farmers. And um... well, It's interesting. When, we, when I first moved to Tassie and I walked into the fruit and veg section at my Coles, which is two blocks from my house, I can mm. walk there. I walked into the Coles and it had, in the fruit and veg, it had um, made in China for grown in China or whatever, for garlic or whatever. Mm. And then it had made, grown, in Tasma- grown in Australia and then it had grown in Tasmania. And I'm like, you do realize Tassie and Australia are the same place. <laughs> but I really appreciated that yeah, Coles yeah. were calling out Tasmanian produce. Yeah, yeah. And after, about probably six years ago, that stopped. Oh, really? Because they took the distribution center out of Tassie yeah. and took it to Melbourne. So now if you grow berries in Tassie, so Driscoll's grow a lot of berries here. Goes there and comes back? Yep, they go to, go to Melbourne. And then comes back to Tassie? Yep. Yeah, so the so local super- supermarket can't say this is Tasmanian because maybe it came from one of their mainland farms. Maybe yeah, it didn't. Yeah. Whereas back at, back six years ago, we had local distribution centres and they knew the Tassie stuff versus the mainland stuff. Mm. Probably wrap it up. What do you reckon? You got any other final words? Oh, look. We've gone on a big you know, know, rant. I didn't know you were into permaculture, which is good to hear. I'm slightly random. I probably need more. more I need to stop working just so I have time to pr- pursue all the random like uh, interests I have. Mm. I have an orchard, but I don't have the, all the uh, development around it. I basically went, I'm going in here and planting all the fruit trees. I'll come back and make it a permaculture garden later. Mm. Well, I mean, that's good. At least they're growing. Yes, yes. Get your cover and, um, and then put your rest in, in other words. Exactly. And I've got all weird varieties. I mean, but I like per- I like passive house. I like construction. Construction's my passion. That's what I want to do. Um, and I want to do more of it. So I'm, I'm trying to find a niche in Tassie where I can construct good quality buildings that I'm proud of, mm. that people can live in and be healthy and happy in. Mm. That's kind of That's the good. goal. And um, I enjoy subdivisions because you get to kind of create the space that people, you know, essentially build lives in. Mm. I like that. So if some sort of hybrid of those two will be what my next development's business turns into. But for the time being, it's just a, a – uh, it's, a, it's an evolving project. And your projects are all on your website or you don't have a website at the moment? I don't have a website. I really I, – most of my projects are for me, so I communicate it all through um, Instagram because <laughs> some people engage with it there, but also I just – like a lot of – I get a lot of joy out of going through my Instagram feed and just looking at the stuff I've done mm. and going, oh, here's when I worked on this and here's when I worked on that and a lot of great interaction with people, so – it's kind of like a, it is an album. I think of it like that too. I like to go through and what was I doing in 2014? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I've never really enjoyed Facebook. It's never kind of gelled with me, but I, I like Instagram because it's a visual thing. Mm. But I've done a few things lately where I, I did a to- like a tiny little photo and a massive post mm. and I got so much engagement from people who read it. I'm like, man, that's like a page and a half long post on Instagram and people are reading it. I'm like, well, I'm probably pretty positive about the way life will go and I'd Part of me would like to see a very big change in the way the world works. The downside is it'll affect a lot of people badly, but I think we need it. I think we need a different way to operate. What we've got at the moment is broken. All right. At least you're being the change. In Um, my bit. Yep. In your bit. That's it. As I mean, small town in Tasmania. I mean, it's not that small. It's growing, but um, still small town comparison. Istanbul's got the same amount. I, I like it the way it is. It's... It is the second biggest city in the state, and our rush hour lasts about fifteen minutes. Yeah, <laughs> I think right. Istanbul has twenty mo- the same as Australia has in population in their city. 
Mm. Like you can see that alone is how we how long, far we have to go because we can't even really. We think it's busy what we've got, yeah. but it's like, how do they manage to put the whole of Australia in Istanbul? Yeah, but do we want that? No, but I mean the efficiencies of why are we getting rush hours or traffic jams and. Uh, because we we just crap at managing a public transport system That's or exactly. mixing our transport around, and we overregulate the hell out of everything. That's what I mean. Those yeah. sort of those sort of things. We should be so efficient because we have so much land and so much space, and we built it new. They didn't build it new. They've no, still, they're dealing with Istanbul's like, two thousand you know, years old, thousands, thousands of years of evolution, and yeah. they're still managing to manage it exactly in a lot of ways better than us. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, taking yeah, the time good to have a chat to you whatever you were meant to be doing today. What's the temperature down there? Uh, I don't know. The sun's just come out, so it's probably like 10 or 12 degrees outside. Beautiful. Thanks for coming on. And uh, anyone wants to find Jared's work, it'll it's on... Oh, the Next Developer on Instagram. The Next Developer on Instagram. And hopefully he'll get a website soon so we can see some of his projects. Oh, I do have a website. There's just nothing on it. It's just Sweet. a phone number and an email. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>